former Facebook employee, Francis Haugen, has been lauded as a whistleblower for leaking internal documents from Facebook to the government and to the media in support of her call to regulate Facebook on the grounds of the allegation that the company knowingly encourages addiction uh, to its product and the spread of misinformation. Questions to ask about this news include, is there any basis to the allegations that she's making? Even if there were, would that justify any kinds of regulations of Facebook? And what's really behind this latest attack on Facebook? What's motivating it and other efforts to rein in social media companies? Well, welcome to New Ideal, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we're going to discuss these questions under the heading of the topic, When Whistleblowers Blow Smoke, Recent Attacks on Facebook. My name is Ben Bayer. I'm a fellow and instructor at the Ayn Rand Institute. With me is my colleague, senior fellow at ARI, Ilan Giorno. Welcome, Ilan. Hey, Ben. So let's start with just a little bit of background to set the context for this latest round of attacks. There have been many over the last few years. It started uh, last month, September 13th, with a series of articles that was put out by the Wall Street Journal called The Facebook Files about a trove of internal Facebook documents that they had obtained uh, by a then anonymous whistleblower outlining a range of allegations against the company about such things as uh, preferential treatment for VIPs on the platform, the psychological effects of the platform on uh, teenage girls, the way in which it's coarsened civil discourse, the way in which it's spread misinformation, et cetera. Many of these are ones that we've heard before, but this time seemingly substantiated by this document dump. Uh, the, the whistleblower's identity was then uh, revealed in a CBS 60 Minutes interview. Uh, her name is Frances Haugen. She's a former employee at Facebook. She was involved in their civic integrity unit, which was concerned with uh, heightening the level of discourse leading up to the 2020 uh, election. But she then left the company when that unit was dissolved after the, after the election. She then testified before Congress on October 5th and has been the center of attention and controversy in the media ever since then. Uh, just this week, in fact, there was a whole new set of documents that went out to a new set of media sources. And so it's not just the Wall Street Journal that's been writing about these, it's been all kinds of them. Um, one, of the things that's, one thing that we would like to do today in order to examine a number of the claims that she's making and the charges that have been made against Facebook and other social media companies is to look at the congressional testimony. We're gonna look at snippets from the testimony that she gave before Congress on October 5th. And we have a number of these snippets which we're gonna comment on. We think these are the most uh, revealing ones, the ones that bring to the surface, not just the kind of factual uh, allegations, but some of the philosophic assumptions that she and these other members of Congress are, are making in making these charges. We're going to play a number of these short clips. Most of them are about a minute. Uh, and just for our, uh, just for those of you who maybe are watching us uh, or listening to us uh, double time on the podcast, you may want to slow us down because uh, we've sped these clips up just a bit uh, to get more of them in. Uh, and this one, this first one, it sounds a little faster at first, but then I think it'll it'll be easy to hear afterwards. She does speak a little bit fast. So let's let's go to the first one. This one is a 
uh, a good summary, I think, of her overall position, uh, including not only her basic allegation about uh, what the company is doing that she doesn't like, but also what she thinks should be done about it. So let's look at uh, the first clip from Frances Haugen's congressional testimony. Today, Facebook shapes our perception of the world by choosing the information we see. Even those who don't use Facebook are impacted by the majority who do. A company with such frightening influence over so many people, over their deepest thoughts, feelings, and behavior, needs real oversight. But Facebook's closed design means it has no real oversight. Only Facebook knows how it personalizes your feed for you. At other large tech companies like Google, any independent researcher can download from the internet the company's search results and write papers about what they find. And they do. But Facebook hides behind walls that keeps researchers and regulators from understanding the true dynamics of their system. This inability to see into Facebook's actual systems and confirm how they work is communicated and the work as and confirm that they work as communicated is like the Department of Transportation regulating cars by only watching them drive down the highway. Today, no regulator has a menu of solutions for how to fix Facebook because Facebook didn't want them to know enough about what's causing the problems. Otherwise, they wouldn't, otherwise there wouldn't have been need for a whistleblower. How is the public supposed to assess if Facebook is resolving conflicts of interest in a way that is aligned with the public good if the public has no visibility into how Facebook operates? This must change. So just from that clip, you get a, a sense of what her central regulatory demand is. She's, she wants there to be more transparency and she wants Congress to force Facebook to give up in particular its, its newsfeed algorithm, which for Facebook is a major uh, trade secret, it wants to make it public so that it can be studied. In the testimony, she doesn't exactly say what then should be done on the basis of that public knowledge. She does think there should be a a government oversight board, and she certainly makes all kinds of recommendations for the way she thinks the uh, algorithm should be tweaked, and even says what she would do if she were CEO. Uh, but I think the implication there is that the government should be able to force that into the open so that it can force uh, some changes to the algorithm. Uh, we'll talk more about what those might be. But the one thing I think to note at first here is just how uh, ludicrous some of the claims she's making about the rationale for this kind of regulation are in the first place. The, she's saying because of the fact that this is a trade secret, because Facebook doesn't publicize its algorithm, that therefore that makes it impossible for researchers to understand the effect uh, of this kind of social media platform on its audience and compares it at one point to Google, which she says researchers can get data on. Well, she says they can get their search results. But I mean, that's true about Facebook as well. You can see what the results are on your newsfeed. Google doesn't actually publicize its search algorithm. Uh, and it's, I mean, anybody can study the effects of Facebook use without having to know what the secret sauce are in just the same way as the, the people who did the internal Facebook studies that she uh, leaked did. They didn't do it knowing anything about the algorithm. They just said, let's find some Instagram users and see how they self-report about their psychology. Uh, anybody can do that right now. The last thing though I wanted to point out about this, this little snippet is, is the way that she says, Facebook shapes our perception of the world by choosing information we see. And this is a prelude to a number of the various psychological claims that she makes about its effects on users that we're gonna discuss shortly. But I mean, it's, I think it's important to recognize that it's definitely true that there are a lot of people who use social media who have a distorted view of the world. 
But to say that Facebook is what's responsible for that, that it shapes their perception, is this kind of deterministic view that treats us all as though we are simply pawns without free will. And if that's true of the public who are the consumers of Facebook, you've got to wonder how the public is going to be in any better position to be the one to use this algorithm knowledge, this public algorithm knowledge, in order to make decisions about how Facebook should be really run. If we're such pawns, how can we be trusted to be the ones to exercise the oversight she wants the public to exercise? And we're going to, this is a theme we're going to come back to a number of times today, the kind of passive uh, view that she has of human nature and the, the implicit negation of free will that that suggests. Well, I, I want to come back to that too. I think it's really important. It's one of the central issues that comes out of that testimony. I just want to make a different point as we get into this. We'll show more clips. And as you watch the other clips, some of them will include the perspective of the Congress, uh, members of Congress who are questioning her. And I think it's really important to listen to them and how they, they respond to her, how their the whole attitude to it. I think there's an atmosphere uh, in those hearings, and I think you see it as well in the press coverage, it's, there's a, an embrace of Haugen. There's a view of her as exposing something about Facebook and hence the, the idea that she's a whistleblower that carries the implication that she's revealing some wrongdoing. In my view is that there's a, uh, something really ugly about the way she's been embraced. So just a, a couple of quick examples of this in one of the uh, introductory remarks, one of the members of Congress calls her a 21st century hero, someone who our nation owes a debt, a huge debt of gratitude. And practically, and those are direct quotations, and practically every person who questions her in this hearing in the subcommittee is praising her. And not only praising her, but then once she's once they've elicited from her the kind of the material that they are very eager and gleeful to hear, then they they, they reflect back to her. Here's my pet piece of legislation for what we can do with Facebook. What do you think of this? Do you think this will help solve the problem? Does it reflect your experience? These are the problems I'm concerned about. What do you think? And it, 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 it's almost like a party where they're all celebrating. Now we have what we always wanted. You know, we knew all along there was obviously something wrong about Facebook. And now she's given us this internal document uh, tranche and we can now go to, you know, go after them the way we really wanted all along. So this, this sort of culture-wide appetite for finding something, anything to hang Facebook with, and she now has delivered it. I would capture it in this way. There's a kind of, at least in the hearing, and, and some of this is also in the press coverage. We'll, we'll see, we'll hear more about this, but there's a kind of presumed guilty atmosphere all around the discussion uh, in, in the hearing, and then as we'll see in some of the clips in particular, this is, I mean, another way to put it, we haven't established this point yet, but I think by the time we finished our conversation today, I think part of what you should get from the way Haugen is presenting this material, how the material is being processed by the people in the hearing and how the wider cultural discussion around it is, I would argue that part of what we're seeing is a manifestation of an anti-business bias. This is a kind of prejudice. It's we or it, it looks like this. We know Facebook is guilty. The question is, how, what do we do about it? And Haugen's document dump is now a, a treasure trove for, for the people who have this view. 
They're not really looking for facts. They're not interested in the truth. They're interested in now we have something to rationalize our pre-existing uh, animus towards Facebook. Now that's a very strong claim and we've just started the conversation, but let's get into this. And I think it's easier to see if we dig into some of the claims and evaluate them. So Ben, why don't you set us up for some of the next clips? Yeah, the next clip is an exchange between Haugen and the chairman of the Commerce Committee, Richard Blumenthal, Senator Blumenthal from Connecticut. And he asks her questions about the, some of the psychological claims we were alluded to, alluding to. And it's interesting to look at her responses. So let's play this. Has Facebook's research, its own research, ever found that its platforms can have a negative effect on children and teens' mental health or well-being? Many of Facebook's internal research reports indicate that uh, Facebook has a serious negative harm on a non-significant, uh, a significant portion of teenagers and, and younger and, and children. And has Facebook ever offered features that it knew had a negative effect on children's and teens' mental health? Facebook knows that its amplification algorithms, things like engagement-based ranking on Instagram, can lead children from very innocuous topics like healthy recipes, I think all of us can eat a little more healthy, um, all the way from just something innocent like healthy recipes to anorexia promoting content over a very short period of time. And has Facebook ever found, again, in its research, that kids show sign of addiction on Instagram? Facebook has studied a pattern that they call problematic use, what we might more commonly call addiction. Um, it has a very high bar for what it believes it is. It says you, you, you self-identify that you don't have control over your usage and that it is materially harming your health, your schoolwork, or, or your, your physical health. Five to six percent of 14-year-olds have the self-awareness to admit both those questions. It is likely that far more than five to six percent of 14-year-olds are, are, are even are addicted to, to Instagram. So a few things to say here. One is just very quickly, I think it's it's important not to dismiss the the concerns that people have about the mental health of uh, young people today. There's there's definitely, uh, I think, a measured uptick in anxiety and suicide. And, and, and it's something that's definitely worth worth looking into the causes of. And it's also almost certainly true that there are a lot of people who use social media who use sites like Facebook and Instagram, who have mental health problems that are that need to be addressed. The, the thing to raise a question about here is the way that Haugen is not just acknowledging that fact and that effect, but making a very definite causal claim about, about what's causing it. She's, she says that social media causes serious negative harm. Uh, and one of these harms that she has in mind is what she's actually calling addiction. And there's efforts throughout this testimony to compare uh, what Facebook is offering its users to what tobacco companies were offering uh, their users and which were then uh, regulated. And they're trying to push for a similar kind of regulation. Um, the first question I think one should consider here is what's the, what's, what evidence has been offered uh, for any of these kinds of very strong causal claims. And we'll get a bit more of a sense of that in this next clip, but only a bit more. So here's uh, a, another exchange with uh, Senator Blumenthal. What is it about Facebook's tactics of hooking young people that makes it similar to what Big Tobacco has done? Facebook's own research about Instagram contains quotes from kids saying, I feel bad when I use Instagram, but I also feel like I can't stop, right? I, I know that more time I spend on this, the worse I feel, but like, I just can't, like that they want the next click, they want the next like, they, they, the, the, the dopamine, you know, the little hits all the time. And 
I, I feel a lot of pain for those kids, right? Like they, they, they say they fear being ostracized if they step away from the platform. So imagine you're in the situation, you're in this relationship where every time you open the app, it makes you feel worse, but you also fear isolation if you don't. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity here to make social media that makes kids feel good, not feel bad, and that we have an obligation to our youth to make sure that they're safe online. So I looked at the uh, slide deck that Facebook released that was part of the original leaked documents, but Facebook released it with some annotations. And it's interesting to see how much can you actually get from the slide deck, even with the annotations. I don't, I think the answer is not that much, but there's enough in them to reveal that in this exchange that happened and the whole of the uh, congressional hearing, it's brazenly non-objective. So if, if we just take the material that uh, Facebook disclosed and that she disclosed in her leak, the claims about uh, Instagram's impact on young people. So there's a study that they're asking her about. You can look at that. You can see the, the data that Facebook shared in its internal slide deck that has been released. One of the things that you would expect anyone who is really concerned with the facts and finding out the truth one, they would have to admit that they don't have the full context. And even with the slide deck, it's not exactly contextualized, even with Facebook's annotation. So that is a huge proviso that you have to acknowledge. And so it's very limited what you can draw from it. But even with that, even with that proviso, they select the data that serves their particular goal. And they don't mention the data that contradicts it. And that should make everyone suspicious. And I think that what it reveals is an, an, a lack of interest in the fact. So she mentioned that a number of uh, teens say that uh, being on Instagram uh, causes them suicidal thoughts. In fact, more of the respondents, twice as many respondents said it alleviated such thoughts as those who complained that it caused them. And the same is true, five times more of the, of the teens who were questioned in this study, five times more said, Instagram made them feel less sad than sadder. Now, the, and I'm not even going through all of the results. You have go look through this stuff and see how the data break down. You would want to know what those data tell you. The fact that none of this comes out in the in the hearing, and particularly from Haugen, who, who's supposed to have looked through all these documents, and all of the, the, the people who question her from the podium, they're not interested in anything that contradicts their particular view. And that is a, a hallmark of non-objectivity. So the point here, I just wanna stress, I'm not arguing, and, and neither, I don't think Ben's view is this either. We're not here to argue that Facebook's data proves one way or another about in, Instagram's uh, impact on young people. That's a hard question to solve. I don't think the, the study actually answers that question. We're not arguing either way on that point. What I'm arguing is that if you were really concerned with that question, you can't just pick the data that suits you and ignore the data that contradicts your perspective. And when you do that, not only is it non-objective, I think it goes further. I think you can actually make the claim that it is a sign of really bad motives. It's, non, it's, a, it's a bad faith approach to quote statistics like that, torn out of context without any kind of uh, uh, concern for what you can actually draw from them. And I think there's, all, there's a lot of questions about how scientifically meaningful this study even is because it's reported impact. It's not studied impact with control groups and so forth. But I, what I wanna stress here is you don't have to take a position on the impact of Instagram on young people. And it's an interesting question, it's important. The data 
what should if you're really concerned you would look at the data and look at the facts and you would not shut your eyes to things you don't want to be true and that's exactly what we're seeing is a brazen form of non-objectivity that should raise everyone's uh, uh, suspicions about what's happening here so this to me is another is a piece of evidence towards this view that this is a, a, a way of rationalizing a pre-existing prejudice, an anti-business bias that we are seeing here. Yeah, I think that if if these senators were actually interested in the truth, if any of them were interested in the truth, uh, you would you would have had a very different hearing. For one thing, you wouldn't have Haugen being treated as though she's an expert on psychology, when in fact her expertise is data science and algorithms. Uh, that's even though Facebook employs actual psychologists. And even though there's plenty of psychologists to go around who could comment on this data, this is something that we've learned in the days after uh, this scandal broke because a number of actual research psychologists have now written op-eds for papers uh, having looked at the data and having concluded this just doesn't prove very much. So for instance, there was a piece by Christopher Fergus, who's a professor of psychology at Stetson University in the Orlando Sentinel on October 4th, who points out that some of these conclusions, it's actually the different, it's the other, it's the other image. Uh, he, uh, he points out that this is, some of the conclusions about body image uh, are derived from sample size of 25 people. Uh, and of course, they're all self-reported. Now, of course, when you're trying to come to conclusions about the causes of mental uh, problems, you need to rely on a lot of self-reporting data, but you want more than just that. And yes, then there was the other article in the New York Times by Lawrence Steinberg, a professor of psychology at Temple uh, on October 10th, who makes the very important point that there is no control group for any of these studies. They're not compared to people who simply don't use Instagram, that's really important to be able to do if you want to try to make a causal claim and not just a correlation. Uh, and you know, also points out that many of the more obvious factors that could be accounting for the rise in teen mental health problems are simply not being considered. If you cared about the truth on this question, you might invite something like Professors Fergus and Steinberg to testify uh, as actual expert witnesses in a hearing where there are these very substantial claims about psychology being made. Uh, but aside from getting into the weeds on the actual data and, uh, the, and the various studies, I think the more important point to make here is about the very uncritical use that's being made here of the concept of addiction and the way that it's being thrown around and even alleged that Facebook is trying to cover up the obvious fact that this is an addiction and we would all commonly call it this, but they're trying to use some euphemism. When in fact, if, if, a, if the concept of addiction means anything at all, it, it means something much more specific than simply a habit. A habit is what you have when you get used to doing something and you get uh, pleasure from doing it. An addiction is a physiological condition where your body becomes dependent on a certain chemical and where you withdraw from the chemical, you're actually in danger of your life. Like if someone is a true alcohol addict, they need to go to a hospital uh, if, they're going to, if they're going to detox. They can't just stop drinking. They can actually die if they stop drinking. That's what real addiction is, if it's anything at all. And to just sort of casually take it as obvious that uh, people who are habituated to using social media in a certain way are anything like in the same category as that, 
uh, trivializes the situation that real addicts face and is completely abusive uh, of, of, the, of, the, of the actual concept. Now, you know, there are ways that you can prove that certain forms of addiction are real. If you could somehow prove that there was something analogous to the actual chemical dependency uh, that you have in something like alcoholism involved in social media use, which I really doubt, there would then still be a separate issue of what would that even prove about what these kinds of about the kinds of claims that are being made about the need for regulation? Because it's still not the case that even the tobacco companies somehow forced people to use their products, that the people who used their products didn't have the free will choice to be able to quit them. Uh, you know, nobody's taking, putting a gun to teenagers' heads and forcing them to use Instagram. They still have the ability to turn it off, log off, go on to some other app, stop using their phone entirely. If they are in the habit of using it, it, it might hurt a little bit more to make that choice. It might not be as pleasurable, but it's still a choice. And that's true, I think, even for young people, even for teenagers. I mean, it's true that young people have less self-regulation than adults, but they're still human beings uh, and they still make choices. And you know, they need to be given tools and they need to learn how to make more responsible choices. But of course, that's, that's what parenting is for. That's, that's what parents are for, to serve as custodians and guardians uh, of, of their children. Uh, and this has some important implications for policy because it, you know, one thing it means is that parents need to be put in a position where they can help the child make choices. And it will be interesting to see what kind of autonomy the, these various politicians want to invest in parents, uh, let alone in children. Uh, it turns out not to be as much as you might have expected. Ilan, um, did you want to say anything more about that, or should we go to the to the next clip? One quick thought, Ben. And again, I, I I agree. I don't think that there is uh, evidence to think that this is truly an addiction. And addiction, I think, is a contested concept, even within the field. From what I understand, in psychiatry, this is not an obvious thing that you can just pin it on various things and say this is an addiction, this is not. It's a really complicated scientific question. And a philosophical question, because as you point out, there are one of the things that you get from hearing, the, listening to the hearing, is it's as if nobody has free will. It's as if we we are just passive victims. Facebook is hooking us in the way that a drug pusher hooks you. It gives you the first the first sample is free, and then you're hooked, and so you're forever connected to him. And you think about the psychology that they're trying to drum up to activate in people's thinking. All of this, I think, is part of the non-objectivity that's going on here, this, this attempt to justify a pre-existing animus towards Facebook. Just, but I think it's worth just stepping back for a moment and saying, let's just bracket the questions about the impact of using social media. Because I think that it's, it, it's worth thinking about what is the impact of using social media? Can it, be, can it have uh, uh, detrimental effects on you psychologically and so on? I don't want to talk about that in the context. I think it's bizarre to talk about that in the context of the immense value that Facebook has created, that it represents, and that we all benefit from for zero dollars per, per, per use. Like it's completely free, right? And to me, 
the, the burden of proof for the kind of things that they're accusing Facebook of in the light of what it's actually doing and how the, the value that it represents, you have to climb a mountain. You have to climb an Everest, I think, at this point in order to justify the kind of claims that are being thrown around here so cavalierly in the context of what Facebook is. So it's almost they're, they're treating Facebook like the, the corner crack dealer. And with all the moral indignation that that should activate in you, like, the, is that really true? Can you even begin to think of Facebook in, in exactly those moral terms? I think it's this is part of what I think is the smearing campaign that we see surface in this hearing. It is not a, an honest attempt to evaluate what is going on with Facebook and people's usage of it. It is an attempt to put Facebook in the same moral category as the lowest, most disgusting and despicable uh, dealer of drugs that knows that it's harming people and has complete indifference to the fact that it's destroying lives. Now that I think is part of the, the, the grotesque moral atmosphere that you get from listening to this hearing and from reading about it. But let's, let's hear a bit more because I think I, I want people to get sort of more of the concretes of what's going on here. Actually, before we do the next clip, let me just make one more point building on what you just said uh, regarding the value of Facebook that is obvious. And that's that, I mean, you cited data from their own study showing there's a very large percentage, even a larger percentage of, of young people who reported positive mental health benefits uh, from social media. You can especially imagine why that would be true during uh, the lockdowns, the pandemic. What these politicians are proposing to do is in effect to, to not care about what those positive benefits are, sacrifice the people who get positive value out of these social media platforms in order to cater to the smaller number of people uh, who uh, possibly use them in unhealthy ways. And that's, that's also a travesty of morality. But yeah, let's go to the next clip. Now this, this is one where we're gonna uh, drill down into just one last, one of the last psychological claims, because Ilan, you mentioned some of the ways in which the previous clips involved distortions of statistics. I think this last example is a particularly blatant one, and they, it, we really need to call them out for it, because I think it, it speaks to what their motives are and, and why they're not honest. So let's go to the one first uh, with Senator Klobuchar. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you so much, Ms. Hogan, for shedding a light on how Facebook time and time again has put profit over people. Uh, when their own research found that more than 13% of teen girls say that Instagram made their thoughts of suicide worse, what did they do? They proposed Instagram for kids, which has now been put on pause because of public pressure. Uh, when they found out that their algorithms are fostering polarization, misinformation, and hate, um, that they allowed 99% of their violent contact to remain unchecked on their platform, including lead up to the January 6th insurrection, what did they do? They now, as we know, Mark Zuckerberg's going sailing and saying no apologies. I think the time has come for action, and I think you are the catalyst for that action. Um, you have said privacy legislation is not enough. I completely agree with you. You can really see the kind of glee that you were mentioning in that particular clip. She's she's really getting into these claims and 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 lauding uh, Haugen for being the one to bring them forward. But I just wanted to spotlight very quickly the claim that she makes, and it goes by very quickly, that more than thirteen percent say. Uh, it makes their thoughts of suicide worse. Now, that's a very striking claim. If you don't pause to think about what she's saying there and you and just leave leave it hanging, it's it sort of sounds like she's saying 13% of the people who use Instagram want to kill themselves. But is that what the data actually shows? Well, let's let's take another look where this same claim comes up in the same hearing. This time from the opposite side of the aisle, Ted Cruz 
asking Haug a question about it. As you're aware, and as indeed the documents that you provided indicated, um, Facebook's, according to the public reporting on it, Facebook's internal reports found that Instagram makes, quote, body image issues worse for one in three teen girls. And additionally, it showed that, quote, 13% of British users and 6% of American users trace their desire to kill themselves to Instagram. Uh, is that a fair and accurate characterization of what Facebook's research concluded? Um, I only know what I read in the documents that were included in my disclosure. Um, that is that is an accurate description of the ones that I've read. Uh, I, because Facebook has not come forward with the total corpus of their known research, I don't know what their other things say. But yes, there is documents to say those things. Okay, so one thing that's helpful about this clip from Senator Cruz is that he's a slightly more precise than Senator Klobuchar. And one thing you get is, oh, the 13% figure was actually for uh, British uh, young people. It's 6% for Americans. But here's a question. When you heard that, was your thought that what they were saying was 13% want to kill themselves because they're on this platform? Because if that's what you thought, it's a complete misunderstanding of the actual claim, a misunderstanding that's been facilitated by the way in which this has been presented. It turns out that, the, that these figures are actually 13% of those who reported having mental health problems while they use Instagram, 13% say that their previous existing thoughts of suicide were made worse. And even there, it's self-reporting. So we don't know exactly if the, if the, if the uh, young people's causal claim is accurate. But when you then look at, well, what percent of those people had some kind of mental problems while they were using it, compared to the ones who had none, it turns out to be something like 1% of the total in the survey who said that their thoughts of suicide were worse. Now, Cruz's language here also is a little more precise. He says 13% of British users and 6% of Americans trace their desire to kill themselves to Instagram. It's not that much more precise. It suggests, well, of those who had a desire. But you could easily have read that to mean that 13% get this desire. And not, none of them pause to clarify what they mean by that. Senator Cruz even asks Francis Haugen, is there any context you want to add to this to try to clarify it? She doesn't push back. She doesn't uh, offer any nuance or qualification. Uh, I think this kind of misuse of statistics should really raise red flags for anyone who assumes that, that these politicians are making any kind of honest inquiry into what's going on here with the psychology of, of Instagram users. Uh, that's especially if you now consider the odd point that Senator Ted Cruz is now all of a sudden concerned with uh, body image issues and thoughts of suicide in teen girls with the same Senator Cruz who's, you know, uh, come out against uh, uh, various forms of trans rights. Is he going to get on board the, the people who say there are statistics saying that certain the higher percentage of uh, trans people who use, uh, who are denied use of uh, bathrooms have thoughts of suicide? I bet he wouldn't get on board with that statistic. What's the difference here? Is it that this one serves a political agenda that he has, whereas the other one doesn't? Uh, any thoughts you wanted to can add? I, can on I, this exchange? Yeah, can I just say, I my experience of watching this and reading the, the transcript later is, I don't think they give a damn about young people. And I particularly don't think they care at all about those who are in a position where they feel like they they want to harm themselves and, and and i there are obviously that's a real problem and that's something parents should be on the lookout for and everyone who's around those children should be on the lookout for and think about how to intercede 
I don't, I don't think at all that that is a sincere motive behind any of this. I think that those teens who are in that category that they feel like being exposed to their friends and all these feeds on Instagram, they, they experience it in, in a way that reinforces their negative views and their desires to harness them. That's, that, that's believable. I mean, you would need more evidence to know about what's going on there, but I don't think that, uh, I think they're being brought in as pawns. I think this is, this is a classic case where a, a status goal is brought in on the strength of it's for the children. And not only the children, the children who are who are in a position where if we don't act, they will kill themselves. Now just think about what this is. This is a, a, a really grotesque exploitation of these very vulnerable and in many cases endangered uh, teens who something, I mean, the people around them, the people who are in their families and their friend circles, they should be looking for the signs and helping those teens. What, they, what these teens are not gonna benefit from is being wheeled out as a rationale for going after a, a Facebook. I, I don't think that's really gonna save these kids if, for the ones who are really feeling like they need the, their only hope is, to, the, the, so they lost all hope in life and they need to do something drastic like that, which is really tragic and I feel for them, but I don't think that there's any honest concern for them. I think they're, they're being exploited for a political goal here. It's probably not a coincidence that anytime there is a new form of media that is popular with young people, the same exact kind of uh, accusations come out. There, I mean, these were the same sorts of accusations they made about rock and roll. There were whole campaigns against comic books on the grounds that it would give people unrealistic body image issues, uh, and and censorship was imposed on on comic books because of that it had an effect on the industry. Um, but we talked earlier about you know what you would think would be the genuine implication for whatever kinds of problems there are with young people would be that parents need to be empowered to be able to help children make better choices. So let's take a look at some clips dealing now with what it is these senators and Francis Haugen would would like to would like parents uh, to be able to do. Uh, first, we'll go to a statement that she makes uh, on the way Facebook has dealt with this issue. So let's take a look. Um, Facebook knows that parents today, because they didn't experience these things, they never experienced this addictive experience with a piece of technology, they give their children bad advice. They say things like, why don't you just stop using it? And so that Facebook's own research is aware that children express feelings of loneliness and struggling with these things because they can't even get support from their own parents. I don't understand how Facebook can know all these things and not escalate it to someone like Congress for help and support in navigating these problems. So the solution here is parents don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're talking about. They they don't know how to use social media because apparently parents haven't been around for the last 20 years. Uh, but Congress knows. And she says that the advice that parents might give that in certain cases, maybe children should try unplugging from social media is bad advice. Now, the good one question is, why does she think it's bad advice? She doesn't say there. There are some other places in the hearing, though, where she does say it. Let's see how that comes up and how it connects to some other issues in the next excerpt this time uh, in an exchange with Senator Sullivan. Uh, when Facebook made statement, has made statements in the past about how much benefit Instagram is providing to kids' mental health, like kids are connecting to her once alone, uh, 
what I'm so surprised about that is if, if Instagram is such a positive force, have we have we seen a golden age of teenage mental health in the last 10 years? No, we've seen, we've seen the opposite. Right? We've seen escalating rates of suicide and depression amongst teenagers. Do you think yeah. those rates are at least in part driven by the social media phenomenon? There is a broad swath of research that supports the idea that usage of social media uh, amplifies the risk for these mental health harms. But right now, and this hearing is helping illuminate it, yeah. we are seeing- And Facebook's own research shows that. Right, yeah. say that again, that's said, important. And Facebook's own research shows that. Right, the kids are saying, kids are saying, I am unhappy when I use Instagram and I can't stop. But if I leave, I'm afraid I'll be ostracized. Right. So there's a number of interesting things going on here. First is they mention uh, the fact that there has been an uptick in teen anxiety and suicide over the last decade. And I think, I, I mean, I've seen a lot of statistics about this and it's true and certainly warrants investigation into what the causes are. But the leap to the conclusion that, oh, it's it's got to be social media that's the thing we should pay attention to is quite a leap, especially when there are so many other factors that most people should know are at work here. There are, I mean, there's how are these children being raised? What kind of skills and methods are the parents using to raise them? Are they overindulgent helicopter parents or not, for instance? Uh, the overall climate of determinism that this Senate panel itself is engaging in, where everyone is assumed to be uh, uh, a, a drone without any autonomy, where we're all subject to forces beyond our control. This isn't just the Senate panel, this is kind of the standard academic doctrine that, that people are taught in universities today. How is that helping anything? Couldn't it be part of what's making things worse? And I think the biggest factor that you would have to talk about at the end of the day is, is our education system, uh, which I think by most people's measures uh, is collapsing to lower and lower rungs of hell, not giving students the ability, not giving them the tools to be able to think for themselves, uh, to function as autonomous adults. But for some reason, in spite of all these much bigger factors, it's, it's the social media companies that are getting the blame here. And notice what uh, she says at the end about what is wrong in her view with the advice that parents might give that maybe it's good for some people to just turn off their social media. She says, the reason that we can't do that, the reason that's bad advice is because, well, children will fear that they'll be ostracized if they aren't following all the latest news. And notice how that is playing into probably part of the problem here. I mean, surely part of what we need to be teaching young people to do is in, you know, as part of teaching them to think for themselves is to be willing to go against the grain, to go against the pack, to go against the herd, uh, to not be so concerned with being ostracized, but she wants to cater to that and simply uh, provide uh, uh, what she takes to be, uh, you know, some kind of consolation in what might already be a misuse in certain cases of the way people uh, use the social media. So she's modeling the very wrong approach uh, that uh, is only that is probably only making things worse. The assumption that we're all part of a herd that we have to go along to get along, and if parents are giving advice against that, why is that bad advice? 
So Ben, two quick things, just as you were speaking, it occurred to me that worth just adding to this. One is just, I want to echo what she says here, because I think it's interesting to think of the logic in how she's presenting this issue. So she says, quote, if Instagram is such a positive force, have we seen a golden age of teenage mental health in the last 10 years? No, we've seen escalating, et cetera, et cetera, end quote. Why would it even, why would you assume that if there are positive effects, it would lead to, so, uh, from Instagram or Facebook itself, why would you assume that that would lead to a golden age of teen mental health? I mean, that's so out of context. Like the one factor would lead to something like a, like a flourishing of, so it's setting up this impossible standard that I don't think, what would actually lead to something like that? Like it's hard to imagine a single factor having that kind of impact a factor of the kind that we're talking about here, so use of social media. So it's, it's really already framing the issue with, well, we know this is, this is silly. And to your point, the, uh, Ben, about the, the other factors, I just wanted to mention here, I agree with, with your analysis. I think there, there are many other factors you would want to look at if you're concerned about this uh, reported uptick in teen anxiety and, and, and uh, mental health issues which is concerning, uh, and I think that they, she very breezily mentions there's a swath of research showing this is connected to use of social media. Well, I, have to, I hate to be the one to break the bad news to Haugen and others. There are a lot of studies that, <laughs> that people publish and then they're not reproducible. And then there's studies that people publish that are contested. And so it's very easy to say science shows or the studies that I like show, and, and that's just, I mean, the way these things work, it's not quite like that. And you have to be suspicious when someone's very uh, quickly laying down the science shows argument. It's not really an argument, it's an assertion. And just the, the aspect of this that I wanted to stress to just to echo your point, Ben, if you want to think deeply about the way our culture operates today, and, and one of the symptoms of cultural decay that I think we are living through is an uptick, not only among teens, but including teens in mental health problems and anxiety, lack of confidence, the, the experience that many people have of, if I'm not part of the group, I'm going to be ostracized. And that is just, that is unbearable. And I think that to, to your point, Ben, Ayn Rand has a deep philosophic analysis of this phenomenon. It is all over the fountainhead. It is in her nonfiction. In, I mean, just take a look at one of her, her masterpiece essays, which is just in terms of its depth and scope and, and how much it reveals about the world we live in, which is called the Comprachicos, which is a title that's opaque if you don't know uh, sort of the, the reference that she's making in the beginning of that article. But that is an analysis of, of at the time, contemporary education, the whole history of leading up to what uh, American education has become under the influence of a particular philosophical school of thought in education, which is a progressive movement. And I think what she argues in the Comprachicos, this essay, is there are deep philosophic factors at work that have destroyed education and as a result have really crippled psychologically, intellectually, and including morally crippled generations of Americans. And if you want to understand the, the, a, a culture that is adrift intellectually, adrift, lacking values, lacking idealism, 
and you see this generation upon generation this sort of apathy and she was she was living through a time when people were dropping out and, and dropping acid and the, the whole hippie phenomenon which in her analysis is a is a manifestation of a, an abandonment of these so if you're experience if you look at the culture from that broad philosophical suite and you want to understand it the first thing you go to should not be oh it's instagram the first thing you go to should not be oh it's television or whatever the technology of the time is oh it's it's teen magazines which uh, when i was growing up those were always vilified for 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 similar reasons that we're hearing about with instagram what you ought to be looking at are the ideas that have been shaping education and that in effect have been programming people with certain philosophical views and dispositions. That, that's part of what is a result of education. It, it leaves you with certain views about the world. And in our case, those ideas are, are really destructive and they subvert people's intellectual and moral development so that they, they grow up and they are saddled with often crippling anxiety. And, and that leads to other kinds of problems. Now, that is part of what you would need to think about if you're trying to zoom in and try to understand this phenomenon that now scientists are showing us, which is there's an uptick with, with teens who are experiencing this in a way that we haven't seen before. Okay, that issue needs to be put in the wider context of a, a, a multi-decade progression of developments in education, in the cultural atmosphere, driven by intellectuals and endorsed by them, you can't just pluck it out of thin air and say, okay, we found the one causal fact that explains this whole thing and it's called Instagram. That is just, that is, it's a parody of what it looks like to think about this issue. Uh, so why don't we continue? Because there's so many points here that are, that are worth exploring further. Yeah, and uh, even though she doesn't seem to want to endorse the advice that parents might offer to make better for their children to make better choices. There are places where she at least talks about giving parents more choices, but there's still a question of well, what choices should those be? And this comes up in the next clip. Coming in and having oversight might actually make Facebook a more profitable company five or 10 years from now because toxicity, Facebook's own research shows uh, they have something called an integrity holdout. These are people who don't get protections from integrity systems to see what happens to them. And those people who deal with a more toxic, painful version of Facebook use Facebook less. And so one could, could, could reason a kinder, friendlier, more collaborative Facebook might actually have more users five years from now. So it's in, in everyone's interest. You think, I've got a bill, and there's a lot of bills that I think we've all talked about, but mine is called the Data Act. It's going to require express consent from users for large platforms to use algorithms on somebody. you agree with that? Um, in terms of should people consent to working with algorithms, um, I worry that if Facebook is allowed to uh, give users the choice of do you want an, an engagement-based newsfeed or do you want a chronological newsfeed, like ordered by time, maybe a little spam emotion, that people will choose the more addictive option, that engagement-based ranking, even if it is leading their, their, their daughter's eating disorders. So a couple of things I, I just want to jump in here. Uh, one is here you see, I think, vividly illustrated the premise behind paternalism. You're a child and you're not competent to make decisions about your life. So someone else, someone, someone in authority, someone above you, regulators in this case, have to make those decisions. Now you, you might ask, well, how do the regulators know what they're doing? How are they exempt from being incompetent to run their lives? Oh, we don't want to talk about that. They have some superior abilities that you don't. And to the, the point that you led off with, Ben, about parents, the, the pater I mean, in a certain way, a parent 
has to treat a child as not fully formed because they're not fully formed. And so parents have to make certain decisions for their child. And that's a, something that hopefully becomes progressively tapered off as the child becomes more independent. But the premise of, of paternalism here is being applied to parents because they're seen as helpless to guide their children, as we said earlier. They don't know what Facebook is. They don't know what Instagram is. Can't they figure it out? Can't they, which I find strange that this is, those platforms are actually more populated by people who are parents than by not. Um, so the, can't they figure it out? Well, no, they can't. They're helpless. They're pawns too. Facebook is itself helpless. So listen to what she's saying. If Facebook changed its algorithm to be less, quote, toxic, that's her word, then it would make more money in the long term. So Facebook is being short term as a child might be. The child just wants candy right now. I just want candy endlessly. And who cares about my teeth? Who cares about my health? That, so that's Facebook. They just want to maximize profits. That's her term. But they can't see the long term, which is what you hope a child would one day grow up to be able to do. And so in effect, not only are parents children, Facebook is a child. And who can save us? Well, here, I, Francis Haugen, and all of you who are sitting here in the hearing, we can figure this out. We're so smart. Let me run the show, in effect. So we can stand apart from all these children and we can be their parents because they're too stupid to do it. Now, one, of, one other observation about this one clip. Did you notice uh, in this clip how the, I think the senator from Florida was saying to her, I've got a bill that does this and this. Did you, what do you think of that? Would that work to help us here? This is the point I was raising at the very beginning. This is this kind of mood or atmosphere in the hearing and broadly in the culture around the, face, the Facebook papers that it's, it's sort of a gleeful embrace of Haugen as a whistleblower, as a, as, a, as a hero, and that she's finally enabling us to do what we've always wanted to do, which is knock Facebook down in some meaningful way. Uh, and to me, this is, it's just really unseemly and morally repugnant. Uh, it's not at all concerned with the truth. Yeah, I think your point about how she's seeing the whole range of players here as, as not really having free will, except of course for the regulators, is, is really important. And that comes out in the way she doesn't want to even allow people to be able to make choices. I mean, she's talked about how parents need to have better choices, but here, Here's a case where she could offer them one. If the current algorithms are so bad, if she doesn't like the way in which if you follow a certain uh, person more, click on them more, you'll see more of their stuff. If that's the problem, why not be able to opt out of that algorithm and just uh, get things chronologically as she likes if you want to. But no, in that passage, in that excerpt, she, she even says, no, I don't even think people should have that choice. They should just by default be given what they don't want. Uh, again, on the premise that they don't, that nobody knows how to make uh, better choices. But then notice how that even contradicts her own setup, because she's saying, part of her rationale for saying Facebook would itself do better if it were forced to make longer term decisions, allegedly, uh, is there are people who aren't using it because they don't like the current toxic environment. Well, if that's the case, uh, apparently people actually do have the ability to turn this off even if it means they faced you know, terrible ostracism. But that is just passed over and not acknowledged. Uh, and 
incidentally, I should just mention also, if it's if it's really true that Facebook is just like a child who wants the candy and isn't willing to look at the long term, and why the heck is it hiring all these research psychologists to do all these internal studies? Is it is it is it just because it knows they're going to be leaked and they want to be able to show the research they've been doing in that event? No, I suspect they're actually interested in the data and they're trying to consider it as one of among many different factors uh, that are involved in running an extremely complex international. Uh, organization and, and piece of software. But yeah, I think all of this underscores the fact that there is a really deep and intimate connection between the assumption of determinism, that people can't make choices for themselves, and statism, the idea that, that the, the, the regulators, the government, who somehow is able to be exempt from that metaphysical condition, they're the ones that need to make the choices for us, uh, and uh, which of course evades the fact that the state is also run by people who would presumably not be able to make choices themselves in an effective way. Uh, but you might still be thinking, no, this is this is all just on behalf of the children. Uh, adults are supposed to be different. We should now transition to the final topic, which is uh, what she and they have to say about the spread of misinformation on Facebook, which I think uh, is is really revealing. And actually, just to um, just to save time, uh, why don't we skip the next clip and go to the last one, uh, the one with Scott Pelley. It's listed as clip 12, the last one on uh, misinformation. Facebook essentially amplifies the worst of human nature. It's one of these unfortunate consequences, right? No one at Facebook is malevolent, but the incentives are misaligned, right? Like Facebook makes more money when you consume more content. People enjoy engaging with things that elicit an emotional reaction. And the more anger that they get exposed to, the more they interact, the more they consume. That dynamic led to a complaint to Facebook by major political parties across Europe. This 2019 internal report obtained by Haugen says that the parties feel strongly that the change to the algorithm has forced them to skew negative in their communications on Facebook, leading them into more extreme policy positions. The European political parties were essentially yeah. saying to Facebook, the way you've written your algorithm is changing the way we lead our countries. Yes. You are forcing us to take positions that we don't like, that we know are bad for society. We know if we don't take those positions, we won't win in the marketplace of social media. I think one of the points to make here is sort of the broadening of this, this argument that nobody really has free will. No one is an agent. No one is able to make decisions for themselves. And that uh, we're, we're distorted by uh, this sort of weird incentives in the case of Facebook and that even political parties and politicians, supposedly Facebook's algorithm forces them into making certain uh, views. Uh, so they're not really driven by what they believe is true. They're just reacting to what people are talking about. So I think this, there's more to say about the issue of misinformation. And uh, I think this whole uh, perspective that we've seen in the hearings that we've shown in, in many of these clips is that there's, there's this perspective on all of us and all, even politicians in other countries is Facebook is this massive manipulator controlling us and we're just passive. Uh, we're reacting to this. It's as if we can't make decisions and step outside of this, which is, which is false. You can test it yourself. You can decide not to use Facebook. You can step away. You can delete it from your phone as many people have done because of various reasons. And you can, you can see in your own mind, what does this look like? Can I do this or not? 
So I, I think that there's, this really feeds statism. So the idea that nobody really has uh, agency and free will, that we're really children, this is part of how statist policies, policies that abrogate our freedom, that, ex that extend the power of government, that enables interventions, this is how it works. Philosophically, you have to deny free will to make these sorts of views, uh, to, to get them uh, put into place. So here we have this whole constellation of factors and it's worth sort of summing them up. Uh, and hopefully Ben will be with us uh, to help uh, add to this. So the, uh, what we've seen in, in looking at the Haugen uh, disclosures is we have this brazen non-objectivity in how the data are being processed. This is a, 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 an attempt to justify a pre-existing presumed guilty perspective on Facebook. And now this we've sort of broadened out this view of how this denial of agency and denial of free will that paves the way and sort of enables statist interventions. And that's really the outcome that this is all intended for. They're gonna, Facebook can't regulate itself in her words. It shouldn't be regulating itself. It should be running a business. And the, the whole premise that they, there needs to be a regulator is enabled and justified by this whole perspective of none of us, except perhaps the would-be regulators like her, are capable of making choices. So welcome back, Ben. It's glad to have you. Did you want to add to any of those points? Well, I'm not sure how, how many points you made. I had a brief power outage there. Sorry about that. Um, but maybe we should just move to the, to the final, final clip and wrap up. I also believe there needs to be a dedicated oversight body because right now the only people in the world who are trained to analyze these experiments to understand what's happening inside of Facebook are people who you know grew up inside of Facebook or Pinterest or another social media company. And there needs to be a regulatory home where someone like me could do a tour of duty after working at a place like this and, and have a place to work on things like regulation, to bring that information out to the oversight boards that, that have the right to, to do oversight. A regulatory agency within the federal government. Yes. So I think this last clip is really revealing because what we get is the idea that part of the reason that she thinks there needs to be these regulations on Facebook is because she wants a job as regulator. She, and you've been stressing this throughout Elon, that through all of these hearings, there's this tendency to say, nobody has free will, not the kids, not the adults, uh, not even Facebook, they can't be, they, they're just pushed along by their profit motive. Not even the politicians in Europe uh, who are somehow themselves being forced by Facebook uh, to make bad choices. But for some reason, the politicians in America are exempt from this problem. And especially me, Francis Haugen, I have free will. So I'm the one who should be able to make choices about how people use social media. Uh, and I also, uh, and don't have to care about some of the things that Facebook does, such as the bottom line that enables them to continue to provide this service. I wanna be able to call the shots about what kinds of algorithms get used, even if they're not the ones that the advertisers putting the bill think uh, are actually going to be valuable for the kind of advertisements they want to sell. Um, and last uh, comment I'll just make about this is just how interesting it is, and we've remarked a few times now about how all these politicians are jumping on this band, this bandwagon. And it's politicians from both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, if you watch this hearing, it's actually somewhat remarkable insofar as there's no partisan disagreement of the kind that you usually see during these hearings. 
That's part of why there aren't uh, alternative witnesses being called. And the senators are just bending over backwards to be nice to each other and civil and, and to say, oh, you know, we have our disagreements, but we can all agree uh, about the importance of this issue. But why is that? I think part of it has just got to be that now they've found a scapegoat that they can both agree on. That, that Especially when you think about where is so much of this toxic discourse coming from that has led to so many families splitting apart over social media, it's come from the politicians who are whose rhetoric has been weaponized in so many cases online. And gosh, they'd probably like us to not notice that they're usually the ones who are slinging the mud at, the mud at each other. It's so convenient to be able to blame the messenger. Uh, Facebook here is the ultimate messenger. And so this is, this is just a great distraction uh, from their own culpability in this problem, I think. Uh, and you know, a lot of what Haugen talks about is how these social media networks are able to take people's hatred and fear and channel it to more clicks. Well, who's channeling hatred and fear here? It's the politicians. They're channeling, channeling it against Facebook. Uh, but with the added point that uh, they'd really like to be able to control Facebook uh, in order to be able to channel more and more of their rhetoric in the future. So I wanted to just acknowledge everyone who's watching and, and who's contributed through the super chat. We are very grateful. Thank you for your support. Uh, it means a lot to us. And we've got a lot of questions. We're going to transition to Clubhouse in just a minute once we wrap up. But I want to answer one question. And maybe if you want to take one too, Ben, I'll add to this. Someone asks us, uh, the big question is, why did they have this hearing? And I, I, I want to take that. And I, I agree. I think that should be the question. We, we've a lot of the discussion we've had on this uh, conversation in this podcast has been given the hearing, here's how it would have made sense to go about it. And this is what it looks like to talk about the science for, and look for the truth and be objective about it. But I agree with the premise. The, the, the real premise here is why is there even a hearing? This is not, the, the, so the, there've been so many occasions when Facebook has been brought in, hauled in front of Congress. Mark Zuckerberg has been done that. A number of the other executives have been done, have been called in. Why is this even happening? And, and I think, again, this is, it's part of this wider perspective on, well, we know there's something wrong here, so we're gonna try to find it. That's not all what it looks like to, to, be, uh, to respect the, the, the freedom of Facebook, to, to be a society that recognizes achievement and to, to be objective about what actually counts as harm and what counts as creating value. And I think that this, the whole approach to Facebook is, as I was, I, I've been calling it this presumed guilty view. I think there's something like that here. So I agree. I agree with the question that you should be, and I think we should all be asking, why are we even having these hearings? If you think this is a, uh, if you think there's something going on here, then uh, I, I can imagine a situation where you might say, oh, they've, they've violated some objective law, someone's rights being violated. I don't think that's true. It's interesting, and just one, one little point about this. So she's called a whistleblower. And I, from what I understand, that is a designation that the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, has created under the, uh, I think it was the Dodd-Frank bill, to allow people from within companies to disclose internal information and then be protected from retribution or intimidation or, or, or reprisal, uh, which means, in effect, 
taking proprietary information that isn't the company would not want otherwise to, to disclose. If the, the whistleblower can show, or if the documents purport to show that some wrong has been done to shareholders. And I think there's, there's this complicated system of regulating uh, publicly traded companies. And therefore th there's this uh, claim that if you're, because in effect, what Haugen is trying to show is that there's been fraud against the shareholders of Facebook because Facebook is saying one thing in public and doing something else in private. And that's part of the claim. It's not only that there's harms to young people. And I, I think this is the same kind of thing. There are the security, Securities and Exchange Commission rules that enable her to be a whistleblower, I think should be challenged and questioned. It's not obvious to me that this is a legitimate position for the law to take. And I think it can lead to a really perverse incentive because in effect, if you read what the whistleblower law enables you to do is you can collect on, so if you are able to show that some wrong has been done to shareholders, you can collect a percentage of whatever the government collects in penalties from the company. Now that's a bounty. <laughs> and I think that is a questionable way in which you would wanna expose illegal behavior. Now, and again, is it really rights violating illegal behavior? which should be exposed, or is it rights violate, or is it illegal because of uh, an irrational regulation that's in place? And I think all of that is scrambled together. And I think it's worth questioning all of that, including questioning the whole idea of this hearing. But let me hand it back to you, Ben. Yeah, I don't have too much. Uh, I don't have any other questions that I want to answer, but I'll just point out it's also that SEC uh, law is particularly ironic given the fact that this in this case the whistleblower is destroying shareholder value uh facebook stock has been down significantly since this whole scandal started and it makes me think that the the, the throwaway line about how oh they would be better in the long term is sort of a fig leaf to uh to try to justify what she's doing which uh, is uh pretty hard to square with the, the financials um, but yeah, let's let's start to wrap up and start by reminding people that we will be going to Clubhouse right after we are done here. Uh, those of you who submitted questions who'd like to talk more about them, um, we've got a record of them and, and maybe we'll try to answer a few of them, but please bring them with you if you'd like to. Just find the Ayn Rand Club on Clubhouse, look up uh, the, uh, the, the meeting that we're having, what's behind the attack on Facebook. We'll be there in just a few minutes, right as soon as we get off of this. Uh, also, like to share some resources with you if you're interested in learning more about some of the ideas that came up today. Uh, Elon mentioned an essay by Ayn Rand called The Comprachicos. This is one, the one that she wrote analyzing the causes of the decline of educational quality in America, in particular the philosophic causes, the philosophic corruption that's at the root of uh, young children's loss of their intellectual autonomy. That's in her book, The Return of the Primitive, the, or also in the Anti-Industrial Revolution. Uh, and you can find out how to buy that if you go to bit.ly slash return to the primitive. Uh, I also talked briefly about how, if, if it's true that there's a uh, long-term profit to be made by uh, creating a better user experience for Facebook's customers, you'd think that that would be something that Facebook would be looking into and probably is part of the reason why it's doing all of this internal psychological research. Well, this is a part of a broader topic in economics uh, and philosophical economics that comes up in an essay in one of Ayn Rand's books. In her book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, there's a, a essay by Alan Greenspan called The Assault on Integrity, uh, where you can learn about, about more, how this uh, fits into 
the rejection of the, the idea that capitalists are just these fly-by-night uh, uh, drug pushers in most cases. So uh, that's in Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, uh, which you can find out more about at bit.ly slash capitalism ideal. And I'll just mention one last resource, which is an article that I wrote for New Ideal a couple of years ago now called How to Empower Students to Break Out of Safe Spaces. Uh, and this is on an issue that came up briefly today about how there's a general atmosphere of determinism in our culture, which is particularly being taught uh, at universities, which if you're worried about uh, the psychological problems, the kind of snowflake syndrome and anxiety that seems to plague so many young people today, well, the opposite of what you would do to try to combat it would be to teach them that they can't think for themselves that they're pawns of forces beyond their control. Uh, so for more on that, check out bit.ly slash break safe spaces. And otherwise, I'll let everyone know now about next week's episode. Uh, we're going to be doing another sort of uh, video reaction podcast uh, in response to a recent podcast that was done by Jonah Goldberg, the uh, conservative commentator, in which he explains his reasons for repudiating the philosophy of Ayn Rand. Uh, this is an interesting opportunity to look into the uh, kind of public mind about Ayn Rand and her philosophy and to show what it reveals. So what Jonah Goldberg's repudiation of Ayn Rand reveals, it's next Wednesday, November 3rd, uh, same time, same place. If you liked what you saw today and would like to be able to follow more of us in the future and you're on social media, if you're watching YouTube, uh, like or uh, share this, please like or share this, uh, this episode to optimize that nefarious algorithm uh, in our favor. Uh, especially if you're watching a recording of this, please consider uh, leaving a comment if you had to say what you thought about the episode. Uh, same story if you're watching on Facebook, on, uh, on that behemoth social media company that uh, gives us this uh, channel of communication for free. Consider liking it, commenting on it, sharing it. And as always, if you have questions about things that came up today or if you have ideas for future episodes, consider sending us an email, uh, the really old fashioned way of communicating on the internet. New ideal, uh, send it to newideal.einrand.org. You have that choice as well. So thanks for discussing uh, this with me today, Elon. Uh, I think we had uh, a lot of interesting things come out of this conversation, more philosophical than maybe most people would realize. So uh, we'll, we'll talk again on Clubhouse in a few minutes. See you then. Yes. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.